This episode is part of Padded Cell Podcast's 10-day event celebrating the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia and Mental Health Awareness Month across Africa. Hi everyone, welcome to Padded Cell Podcast. My name is Letabo Mailula. I work as an advocacy and communication strategist as well as an independent researcher looking at LGBTI issues on the continent. Our guest today is Jamil Khan. Hi, Jamil. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? I'm well. Could you just please introduce yourself? My name is Jamil Khan, and I am a current PhD candidate in critical diversity studies. And I am a writer, a columnist, and a researcher and also the author of my social political memoir called Khamer, The Makings of Avata Slums. Thank you so much, Jamil, for joining us today. I just wanted to do a quick check-in before we start off our conversation, just bearing in mind that a lot of coping mechanisms that we utilize to deal with our mental illnesses in the form of depression and anxiety have been stripped away from us because of this lockdown induced by COVID-19. And I just wanted to know how you are coping amidst this pandemic. Well, you know, I do have to count my blessings in a sense. I'm luckily living with uh, friends, queer friends. So for me, you know, the the fact that I have a queer community in this time has helped me very much. You know, I'm also in a position where I live in a building where I can walk outside but not be, you know, outside in terms of the regulation. Yeah. So mm. so being able to walk into a garden and sit in the sun and, and those kinds of things really, really are underestimated in terms of cushioning one from that sense of isolation. But to be honest, I've 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 had to I've had to utilize the I mean the, the digital virtual technology that we have to just, you know, stay in touch and, and reach out. And for me, feeling my feelings are also important, you know. Um, mm. It's very easy to go, oh, well, you know, there are a lot of people who are worse off. And that's true. There are people who are worse off. But it doesn't help me to ignore the fact that I, too, am affected. That's true. Yeah, so I feel like it's a combination of things. It's a combination of my surroundings that I have been very privileged to be able to choreograph in a particular way. But then at the same time, also being deliberate about allowing myself to feel what I feel and making sure that I do reach out and I do stay in conversation and I do stay in contact with people and enjoying a form of exchange, that, that, that yes. sort of isolation. So um, on my side, I've been doing a lot of reading during this lockdown period that we're in. And I'm delighted to say that one of the texts that I've immersed myself in is your debut offering. (laughs) And I kind of structured our discussion today around your book, but also I had been reading Bell Hook Sisters of the Yam. And there's so many intersecting issues and the way that we come to ourselves as activists. And at the center of activism, Bell Hooks talks about the need for self-actualization and mm. this, the need for self-healing. Mm. So 
maybe if you could break down a little bit what your book is about so that I can go into speaking about mental health and how you were affected. So the book is, the book is a memoir. It tells the story of, of my life as somebody who was raised in the northern suburbs of Cape Town in relatively privileged surroundings in a very a segregated community. And the, 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 the key intersections that I grapple with throughout the book is me being raised as a, a Muslim, but then also having to grapple with the fact that my father was, well, for early years of my life, both my parents were, were drinkers. Um, mm. And anybody who knows anything about Islam would know that that's a very forbidden thing. And so the trauma of that form of abandonment by people who are not gone from you. And then the story evolves beyond that, whereby um, it became my father who remained, you know, somebody, the, the person in the household who uh, basically became an alcoholic. And then having to navigate the shame that that brings on one and that so I, I frame it in this, in the, through the lens of, of understanding myself as a Muslim and, and what that means. But I also create intersections between that and also just generally the feeling of shame that people feel for having parents who, I don't I'm almost antisocial in a sense, you know, that engage in yeah. antisocial behaviors and how one is so harshly judged for that. And then... I also talk about, which is, which is something that comes through in the title, the terminology that is constructed to name people like us in that, that is, uh, we are called Vat Islams. So that is a, is a, a creation of the, the, the idea of dilution and, and, mm. and so a diluted Muslim. And beyond the, you know, it's beyond the drinking and the alcoholism, there's also just, just this general sense of trying to, to, Make sense of yourself in a context whereby you don't practice according to the rules that are set out for you. So living, living as a Muslim, but not following any of the rules that legitimize Islam. Yes. And so how, again, there's another level of judgment and shame that gets packed onto one. And all of this is happening in the context of a post-apartheid apartheid South Africa, whereby the segregation and the divisions and the social stratifications are still very much alive. So now understanding oneself, on the one hand, as a deviant Muslim for which one is shamed and judged, but at the same time finding oneself at the top of an ethnic hierarchy amongst colored people, whereby you are the better colored, um, mm. and how, how that filters into your understanding of, of how, you, how you navigate the world. On top of that, one is navigating the whiteness of Model C schools, whereby in, in that system, if you're not a Christian, then you don't have a religion. So all of that also intersects with this idea of class and the way in which the ethnic divisions in the community also attached us to particular class positions. And that then feeds into the, the interplay between beliefs of inferiority and superiority amongst each other. Intersected with that is also the experience of being queer and queer in a Muslim context and then queer also in a black context generally. So there are two layers of, of navigation going on there. And so with all those intersections, the story basically just takes one through my life and how I have navigated those intersections to come to a place of relative, relative self-actualization, 
that allowed me to basically look at all these structures that were set up to control me and in some ways dominate me and to make choices, make choices about how I would like to relate to them, if at all. That's an accurate uh, and helpful description of that. So Jamil, I want to ask you, I know about the difficulty of translating traumas, emotions, and experiences into language. And Mm. beyond translating that into language, almost putting it out for the world to witness, knowing Mm. how controversial but it almost goes beyond controversial it's it's almost as if not even almost it's an actual taboo Mm. to speak about certain things that you that you have Mm. spoken about and so bell hooks in sisters of the am actually speaks about the importance of our commitment to truth telling which Mm. i think that is the journey that you embarked upon when writing this book you committed to truth telling and also the role of truth-telling in our own healing, in our own self-actualization, which Mm. also helps the way we show up in our politics and in our lives. Mm. So I want to kind of ask you, how was that, the grappling with the shame that you've spoken about, but also knowing that speaking about everything that you've spoken about is a taboo? What was the toll of that on your own mental health? Yeah, so I think I'd start with interrogating the mechanisms through which something comes to be a taboo and, and, and what, what is the purpose of constructing something as a taboo. And for me, that is about maintaining and feeding power structures. No such thing exists as a taboo in the sense of what one can and cannot speak about, what one can and cannot speak against. And so when I think about what I speak about in my book and how those things are constructed as a taboo, it is exactly because I have been taught that those things are taboo that I had to speak about it. Because these are the ways in which we are shackled to things that aren't of our making. So that's the one thing I want to say about that. And for me, the thing about, thing about truth-telling is also, I think one has to go beyond telling the truth about others and maybe how things that others have done affects one, but also the truth about oneself. Yes. And I think particularly in our context in South Africa, the way in which our, I, I, I really hate calling it a reconciliatory process because <laughs> yes. never together. But our, our, our post, post-colonial, post-apartheid social contract, the way in which we go about that is with the, the idea of, first of all, self-preservation through the lie that one doesn't know. One doesn't know how um, the, con- the contract was set up in a previous dispensation and that one still doesn't know. So a lot of this... A lot of our coexistence as South Africans is about myth-making. Yes. Um, and we, we, we abide by ignorance contracts along various axes of difference. So white people in South Africa abide by a racial ignorance contract that says, I didn't know what was happening and, and I still don't know mm. that there is this power dynamic. The... The contract is also subject to like a, a meta contract that 
um, that comes out when there is a form of, of, of understanding of what's going on between, uh, what, as one example now, between white people. And the meta contract states that you mustn't, you mustn't let the other one in on the fact that you actually know. And yes. so at the, by that uh, mechanism, you co-sign each other's ignorance. So for me, a lot of the work that I do, um, and particularly with, particularly with this book, was, is also to say, I know. When, when, when we talk about certain things, um, or when other people talk about certain things that people like me do, or people like me are, are privy to, it is important for me to say, yes, you are right, I know. I know we do that, and I know that the, say, the person sitting next to me also knows. Because there's a way in which the power of ignorance shuts down healing and truth. When I talk about ignorance, I'm not only referring to the physical not knowing of something, because you don't have the information at hand. It's also about the willful choice to ignore things that are in front of you because they could incriminate you, mm. you know? So I went through that process of, of, of balancing as much as what I am also describing things around me and describing things that people have said and done, how that impacted on me, how it impacted on them, how it impacted on many other people. It's very important for me in the process of truth-telling and healing to center oneself within the obligation of also having to tell the truth about oneself. That's an important starting point if you are going to be holistic in your approach to truth-telling and if the consequence of that holistic truth-telling is to be holistic healing. Yeah, you're right. So I'm thinking... Um, I'm thinking about the the work that that you and I both do. Me so much no more in the academic space, but mm. our interactions with other people mm. who may not align with our politics, who are willfully not aligning with our politics, if I put it politely, and. Yeah just the emotional and intellectual labor that we are constantly having to do mm. if we want to, you know, push ourselves forward, if we're committing to our politics and what we want to see the future look like due to the knowledge that we have produced and used as political education. And mm. that takes a huge toll on both of us. So... And not just both of us, you know, on activists, on yeah. academics, on researchers, on people that work on the ground. Yeah. And I'm just interested to know how you negotiate those feelings, those feelings of coming home and just being absolutely done. Like you are exhausted, you've done all of this labor and mm. we also, we don't only do labor in the form of writing our thesis and our dissertations and mm. being at work. We do this labor when you could just go into Twitter thinking, I'm just going to see some memes, laugh at some mm -hmm. jokes. And all of a sudden, <laughs> we are there teaching and fighting and, yeah. you know, just emotionally exhaustive practices and how yeah. you deal with that. Well. I think 
very few people are now not aware of how I recently found myself in a situation like that um, mm. and paid quite a, um, a huge emotional cost for that. But I think, you know, I think what's important here for me is to, <laughs> I think one has to develop a lot of empathy for oneself and to, and to, to engage in forgiveness for oneself often, you know, because when you do, when you do the, this kind of work, the, the goal is, uh, by whichever means one chooses, the goal is always to try and, and, and get other people, or at least a few more people, to understand the importance of working towards a, a more humane society and a more humane existence. That work is a direct challenge to people because... The ask that such a project makes is a direct contradiction to the requirements of power. So for me, over time, I've had, to, I've had also to understand that activism or doing care work, as, one, as, as some people might term it, should also center your, your own importance simply on the basis of being human. Exactly, yes. You... Yeah. You can do this work and people can also attach particular expectations to you for that. But you have to realize that it is not, it is not selfish and it is not insincere to leave that with them and not take it on. Because for me, what, what, I've, had to, what I've had to tell myself is also that as much as what you do this for other people, you must remember that you also do this for yourself. And that part of the project also deserves your attention. I think when you get when you get too caught up in, you know, changing people's minds or politics and all of those things, you forget that there's a part of that process that's that must be beneficial for you too. Yes. And so that at that point where you lose sight of that, I think you run the risk of taking on an emotional and intellectual toll that is that is unfair to you. So I think it's important. I think, you know, and it can go wrong. It can go wrong. We, and we, we do know that also, like with any good thing, um, things can be, can be misused. Um, and so you do find that people do activism simply for, for, for self-preservation and self-enrichment. Um, mm. But despite that, those are anomalies. Despite that, I think it's important that one also does activism for oneself and shows up for oneself and realizes that you are not going to, and I mean this, you really are not going to get to everyone. 100%. Mm. And it's about, it's about you realizing or you extracting value out of those things that you do and saying, I'm not going to measure this thing against a particular standard of achievement. I need to look at what I've done and find the value in it to say, I've done well there. I've done a good job there. And on, in those times where you look at it and you say, I've, I don't think I've, 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 done, I've done well here, absolutely let it go. Let it go because it's not possible. It's really not possible to... It's not possible also to live your life as a job 
24-7. Yeah. That is not kind to oneself. So for me, dealing with the emotional toll and the intellectual toll is also about understanding that I need to, I need to look at what I've done and I need to extract value out of that and say, for today, this was enough. Yes. And, where, and where you don't, where you don't achieve what you thought you would achieve, let it go because you would have, there are also things about what we do that we don't even realize in terms of the impact that it has. And we don't see it and we'll never know. And I think one must rely on the fact that there's also that in the world as a consequence of what you do. There's also those very small inroads and very small impacts that you make on people that they'll never tell you about. They will, you know, they will, you will never even hear about it. Nobody speaks about it. But know that it exists. And so in that sense, there's a, there's a form of faith. There is a form of faith in the fact that because this work is ultimately good and geared towards justice for everyone and everything, that the work that you do will always be good enough. Yes. So um, I'm thinking about the importance of what you're saying now in earlier times when I had been seeing a therapist, one of the things that she used to say to me is the importance of little, of leaving some for yourself. Mm. And I think that that's, that's, that's really important because at the end of the day, we come to this movement with our own baggage, mm. with our own traumas and we come here giving everything in forms of our emotion, our intellectual labor, and the importance of leaving some for oneself is really, really important. Yeah. Because we can't only be sites um, on which people mine information and everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Jamil, for this very generous conversation. You're welcome. And I hope that moving forward <laughs> after mm -hmm. lockdown, hope to see each other and yeah, keep up with the work that we're doing. Absolutely. You know, I think I also just, you know, again, it may be a reiteration, but just, I don't know why. I mean, I, I've, I said everything that I've said now and, and then hearing you repeat it, it just made me realize that which maybe I didn't say previously, that is exactly how I manage to balance the effects of the emotional and intellectual labor on, on my mental mm. is, to, is to, to center myself for myself and to say, you also deserve the good that you, that you are trying to achieve with this world. So where you Absolutely. find it, whether it be in your work or others' work, take it because you deserve it. Mm. That's a beautiful note to finish on. I think so too. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. To find out more about what you have heard today, go to paddedcellpodcast.life. Follow the podcast on Twitter at paddedcell underscore pod, Instagram at paddedcell.pod, and follow the Facebook page paddedcellpodcast. Join us again tomorrow as we break the silence on sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, 
and talk about mental health.